Hello, and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where we look at modern futurism through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is Season 1, Episode 8, A Little Bit More, with Amber Case. to your pants, my dear listeners. Today's episode is a doozy. Amber Case is an artist and designer who studies the interaction between humans and computers. Amber looks at how our relationship with information is changing the way cultures think and act and how they understand their worlds. Amber's work in the field of cyborg anthropology and user experience design led to a two-year fellowship at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and the MIT Center for Civic Media. Amber is the author of two books, Designing with Sound and Calm Technology, Design for the Next Generation of Devices. Amber's TED Talk, We Are All Cyborgs Now, has been viewed over one million times. Oh, what else? Amber was featured among Fast Company's most influential women in technology in 2010, was the co-founder of a location-based software company acquired in 2012, was named one of National Geographic's Emerging Explorers, and was listed among Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30. So along this journey, just for fun, Amber founded Cyborg Camp, a conference on the future of humans and computers. I caught up with Amber there at the 10th anniversary of Cyborg Camp, where we stole some moments away in a sunny corner of a little classroom. A handful of times in my life, I've had the pleasure of dropping into a conversation that could have lasted for days. This episode is one of those. I'm sending you a selection of my favorite snippets from our wide-ranging discussion on career, creativity, class, the theory of time, and time management. Here's Amber. Hi, my name is Amber Case. I founded Cyborg Camp in 2008. A cyborg was defined in a 1960 paper on space travel. The idea is that it's an organism to which external components are attached for the purpose of adapting to new environments. So a person in a spacesuit's a cyborg because humans aren't supposed to be in space. But if you attach all these things, then suddenly you can adapt to a new space. So humans have evolved outside of themselves by having a hammer as an extension of a fist or a knife as an extension of a of a tooth. Mm. Um, and then we had writing that could store our memories and, and our souls outside of ourselves and could be downloaded into people's brains a thousand years later. Donna Haraway, who wrote the Cyborg Manifesto, said, what if we reappropriated the military-industrial complex term cyborg and made it an empowering tool? As a cyborg, you can define exactly who you are because you have this distended uh, second self. And that second self allows you to perform, shape yourself in any way. When I was little, I found a bunch of Plato and started reading Plato, and I didn't know who Plato was. I was just really excited that somebody was speaking, writing in this really cool way. I thought the translator of the Plato book that I was reading was the author. So I was looking, oh. and it was like, James Hugh, 1958. I was like, great, I want to meet James Hugh. Oh, no. No, this is Plato. Okay. But one of the cool things that Plato had was this concept of, you know, like a forum where you get people together and they would just talk. And, and, you know, the Greeks, they had to go to each other's houses and they were really far away. So they'd be walking like 10 kilometers with a bunch of wine. They'd get drunk on the way. They'd talk about the nature of politics or whatever. Like there's all of this kind of 
what the Greeks call kairos time, like unstructured human time that you could use to come up with weird stuff. And because it, you know, we have a lot of chronos industrialized time where you, you have to do this and it's a very sp- specific schedule, but this kairos time, you know, their, their society was filled with that. So I was like, can we bring that and make it, and then make it unofficial and make it 20 bucks, bring a lot of people in and spend all of the money, like most of the money on this year was like accessibility. I go to a lot of different events. I see really interesting people. I want them all in the same room, different ages, genders, definitely social classes. That's a hard one. And I did not come from wealth. And I was this only child growing up in an environment where my parents put TV on the air as broadcast engineers, which is blue collar work that was very quickly automated. My mom's job was automated when I was like 10. My dad's job was then moving from place to place, automating those television stations. I was an only child. They couldn't really afford to have more. (laughs) And um, I just grew up kind of in isolation. Didn't watch TV because they didn't want to watch TV when they got home because they put it on for for a living. I was constantly bullied. My only friend was this little tiny tape recorder and drawing and comics. Then when I went to school, I did really, really well because I loved hanging out with the teachers, but the kids really hated it. I was 12 and I was doing this summer science program because my parents didn't know what to do with me. I was just very depressed. During the summer, I didn't have anything to do. Mm. They sent me to a summer science program. You could type in your zip code and it would tell you like what social class you were going to be and what you'd grow up into. So we were all typing our, our zip code in. There were a lot of at-risk youth there. And then I started typing in zip codes of some of the people I knew with larger houses. And it was like, oh yeah, you guys are gonna get a graduate degree, you'll probably make 120K to 150K a year, you'll be able to move to these places, you'll be able to afford this stuff. I typed in mine and it was like, doesn't really finish high school. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh. After seeing you know, the future that I could get slotted into, I said, well, if I could see it, I could change it. Either you kind of bend time and space, like you can say, well, what can I do? And then I learned about like the social class thing where there's like 50 variables that keep you down or 50 variables that keep you up. And often people come from upper class families and that's why you have free internships. Like a free internship model keeps people from other classes from participating in your economy. And I thought finally if I went to college like that would be a utopia of knowledge or something like that. Oh, if only. Yeah. <laughs> if only. No, it was basically not getting invited to parties. I liked tech because it was fun, because it was the only way that I could meet people, like by creating forums, I could meet people that were weird like me. And then I got paid to do that, which was strange. But the thing is, if you just do tech, you can kind of get in this monoculture. When I first got out of college here, my rent was $200 a month. But once that goes away, there's a certain fabric that's lost in the city. And I want to conserve that, because if it's not conserved, then what's the point? We're just living in hives, and we're the thing that we were afraid of with communism and fascism or whatever. This sameness is not good for the future. It's an enormous health cost in terms of psychologists, risk for opiates, it's a risk for drugs, it's a risk for suicide. All of these things are coming up because we don't have human time, people from different social classes. It sucks that the only time you see people from different social classes when you walk down the street or it's at the DMV. So I had this friend, Willow Blue, and she told me I should apply for this program at MIT and Harvard. She's like, you don't need to have a PhD. And she had them fly me out, have me give a speech at MIT. And then this guy, Ethan Zuckerman, said, I don't have a PhD either. You should join my lab. You know, it's not paid. They don't have a lot of stipends. So I show up and I had to make enough to afford a place in Boston, which means I lived in a closet, but thankfully they had these big old group houses there. And I did that for two years. Attacking on the MIT name got me into different spaces that were formerly off-limits. So I got a kind of passcode for my research into the, the middle and upper class. They will definitely listen. Part of it's nostalgia for when they went there. Part of it's the idea that you have potential. Because these spaces are 
potentiality farms where you don't necessarily end up doing epic stuff, but because everybody believes in you, and a lot of times like at Harvard, people are really silly. They're not all like uptight. The patina is to be structured and uptight and very professional. But inside, everybody's constantly reviewing each other's stuff so that by the time it comes out, it looks really polished. But it's because there's this community behind the scenes like throwing stuff around. It's neat because behind the patina, if, you're, if you have super professional patina, then you're allowed to be totally silly and people take you seriously. But I remember like in Amsterdam, going to the Van Gogh Museum and then getting pissed off because everybody was fetishizing this thing that was beautiful without seeing the person. They're just seeing the output. How unfair is it that we only see the output and we never see the making of? We don't have respect as much for the output or we put it up on a pedestal as if it's amazing and that we can't reach it, when in reality all of us can reach that as long as we learn that it takes 10 years or five years or whatever. Being an amateur before it looks like a patina of professionalism. What if instead of one night, instead of Netflix and chilling, you just drew? We need more insulation and we need enough insulation to be able to be amateur without judging ourselves and having others judge us. There's this concept from the occult called a hypersigil. <laughs> it's the idea that you could make something outside of yourself and that could be larger than you. And then that could then affect your primary self. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yes. why is that crucial? Um, you know, there's this anime called Serial Experiments Lane that I, I found like a music video of in the Napster days and she would like freeze time and cool stuff would happen. I was like, what? And they made this show about a super shy girl that didn't have any social skills getting super powerful in the wire, the wiredo, and uh, how that would affect her primary self. And I thought, oh, I could, I could make that. I'm tortured at school, but I could craft the case organic identity. I went through a bunch of different ones. There's an old one that I archived because that was practice. Yeah. We don't often get practice identities. We just get, we don't get anonymity anymore. That's considered bad. But that was the whole point in the early days. Like you'd be on the well and you could craft whatever you were and mm -hmm. you'd be known for your thoughts. And that was the kind of utopian vision of the web. You'd be known for like what's inside and you'd find these meetups of people who met on the well and they're all weird looking and they didn't match at all. You would never find these people collected together in reality, but because they met from their brains, something was, was there and they had this mutual respect from, for them. Mm. You know, rich people, poor people, people from totally different backgrounds mm -hmm. because they didn't look at the externalities or the social class before all of the little symbols that we choose to subconsciously judge each other by. The Case Organic Identity is a 10-year art project, which I haven't written about yet because it's it just sounded ridiculous to say, this is an art project, you know? And it was a vehicle for getting to a level where I could view things from different social classes to be able to like temporarily adopt an upper class, to temporarily adopt a middle class. If you use the web as a tool and you produce your identity through it, you can do interesting things. You can say, here's what I want to happen in the world in five years and it can happen. So I set a, a series of five-year goals, which were insane, and then I got all of them. But I don't believe in futurism. I believe in just developing stuff that was already there and remembering what was forgotten because it wasn't charismatic enough to be remembered in its own time. What can I dig up, cyborg anthropology, calm technology, any of this stuff from the 80s and 90s that nobody paid attention to because it was ahead of its time or behind its time or it was a research paper so nobody cared? How do I elevate that, put some patina on it so that more people like bank managers will take an interest in it? The Greeks had two concepts of time. Kronos, which is the idea of the industrial time. I have a meeting from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. I can only get these things done within that time. And then once it's done, it's done, right? Like, have you ever gotten to something where, oh, wow, we should really talk about, oh, time's up, bye. 
Yeah. You know, or like in art class, it was always sucky in school because underfunded art class. Okay, we just got to the beginning of the project. Oh, we got to cancel it. We got to go to the next unit. I despise that. Like I wanted to complete things. And then you have Kairos time, which is all about falling in love, watching a sunset, being bored, watching rain on the window when the power is out. <laughs> Poetry manufactures Kairos time like nothing else. Poetry is like a compression of experience and, and emotion, and it's these chunks. It's like, what are the moments in which poetry is read? Those are always Kairos time. Those are the <laughs> memories that you get when you're 80, when you look back on your life. How much of our lives are we actually living right now? And how much of it is not interrupted by just like random Kronos time of technology from robotic alerts trying to grab our time with haptic buzzes. Haptics are just, you know, buzzing on your phone. So like your phone's in your pocket, it's a haptic buzz. I think people should seriously ask, are they happy or not? You can completely rewire your life over the course of five years. I was super depressed because I, I just was stuck. A lot of depression comes from being stuck. You know, and like, it's all about like how you treat each moment. Every moment can be created and every moment can be silly. Like you have to ask what is happiness and what's the last time you were happy and what were you doing? Do you remember anything from last week? Do you remember the Reddit binges you went on? Do you remember the Facebook posts you got angry about? What do you remember? Can you have just a little bit more of that? Take a little disco nap and let the revolution begin. Amber's philosophy that every moment can be created aligns perfectly with where Future Prairie is headed as we wrap up this year and look towards 2019. I'm happy to share that we've been accepted into an arts mentorship program with Northwest Oregon's Regional Arts and Culture Council. And I've begun the lengthy process of establishing Future Prairie, not as an LLC, but as a formal nonprofit with the mission of developing emerging and underrepresented artists. We're going to need a lot of help from our community as we strategize development and finalize our 501c3 documentation. If you or someone you know is interested in helping out, either as a volunteer or as a board member, please get in touch. My email address is joni at futureprairie.com. That's J-O-N-I at futureprairie.com. We have a live show coming up on Saturday, January 19th at the Hollowed Halls in Southeast Portland at 7.30 p.m. Our variety show is inspired by the Chautauquas of the 19th and early 20th centuries, where people from all walks of life came together to experience education, entertainment, and culture for the whole community, with speakers, teachers, musicians, and entertainers. The link for tickets is up on our website, futureprairie.com. If you'd like to see more of Amber's work, check out Case Organic on Twitter. You can watch the TED Talk and learn more at caseorganic.com. Future Prairie is sponsored by Square. Square helps millions of entrepreneurs run their businesses with secure credit card processing and point-of-sale solutions. A number of our Future Prairie artists are using Square to sell their prints, books, and merch. Find out more and get free processing on up to $1,000 in sales at squareup.com forward slash I forward slash future time. Oh, and after all this, you might be wondering, what's Amber's self-care regimen? 
Have I had water? Have I slept enough? Have I had any exercise? What is that weird thought that's nagging that's unresolved? Resolve it. That's that. Thanks for coming. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>